You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 52, verses 7 through 15. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred his holy arm before the, nation, before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This is the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is from Romans 15 verses 14 through 33. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never been, never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain." and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. So Father, we, we gather here in this room and, and what, what feels like a series of decisions to set our alarm, get to sleep an extra hour, um, a set of decisions to come to this particular address as opposed to other addresses, um, a set of decisions to sing certain songs and walk through a certain process. Um, th- these things feel to us uh, like like just kind of a series of, of progressive decisions that, that simply mark a way of maybe educating ourselves about you, maybe, um, maybe just making practical decisions to go to church on, on a Sunday morning and to receive some um, ideas, receive maybe some good feelings, to see some people we know and then to leave. And yet we gather this morning in the presence of the living God. We gather as the temple and in the temple we gather as sacrifices and offerings being offered to you in your presence and received by you in your presence. We we come as a people cleansed by the blood of Christ and made holy by your spirit in your presence. And so God, I pray that those realities would, would shape our understanding of what worship is. It would define for us the work that we've been called to each and every Sunday. It would determine and shape the way that we live our weeks um, as as living sacrifices before you. And God, we pray that you would make us as a community a means by which um, those who do not know you, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, um, those who are still um, caught up in the slavery of idolatry, Lord, would be brought and made alive and brought as offerings with us into your presence filled with life, made holy by your spirit and brought before you. In your name we pray, amen. Um, this morning, uh, I, one, I'm squatting. I, I can tell you why I'm squatting later, but there's very good reasons why I'm kind of squatting here. Um, but one of them is not so that I'll feel like a cool megachurch pastor, although I have to say sitting on a stool like this makes me feel like a cool megachurch pastor. So, um, so I won't be walking around as much. Uh, the, the second thing I, I want us to point out, just as we begin, we're actually going to be beginning this morning um, in verse 13, where we concluded last week. Uh, we're going to consider together again the, um, the, the prayer that Paul, the Apostle Paul left for us um, there in verse 13 as the, the, the beginning point of where he's going to lead us, um, starting in verse 14, and considering in particular um, this prayer in verse 13 that we would abound in hope. Um, Last week, we considered the the end goal of that hope, what that hope was aimed at. That hope was aimed at the ingathering of all the nations of the earth to worship Christ, to the the bringing together into one communion, one people, um, all the peoples of the earth. 
Um, this is the grand vision, the grand hope. It is the, the end of all cynicism about history. It is, in fact, um, because of its, its um, destruction of, of cynicism about history, it becomes the end of cynicism about people and about ourselves and about our circumstances. It becomes a grounding of our whole life together as a people and our mission in this city and our prayers for the nations of the earth and our nation itself. Um, it, it grounds all of it in hope that God is doing something good and glorious that no matter how chaotic it feels, no matter how um, uh, overrun with, with rebellion against God and his ways it may seem, he is up to something in which we can hope. And it's something that he's been promising and declaring he intends to do from the very, very beginning. And so that was the conclusion of last week's text. Um, and this week, uh, we, we take a different angle or a different approach to the issue of hope. Because it's one thing to have a vision of the end, to, to, to hope because God has told us what he's doing, told us where he's leading us, and therefore because we believe he's trustworthy, because he's wise, because he's powerful, that nothing can stop him from those ends, but we can live as a people marked by hope. Uh, but this week, I want us to consider it's a whole nother thing to hope, to, to hope for one great end and, and to see the methodology, the means, the roadmap um, that, that God intends to follow to, to bring that glorious end, that, that vision to completion. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to, to approach Navy's football season this year. A whopping two and seven. We received our annual spanking yesterday from Notre Dame. I don't like Notre Dame. I don't like Notre Dame. It's one thing to say, I know, based on the brilliance of Coach Kenny Niamatotolo, I mispronounced that, but I apologize, that we next year will be a great team. He has said it, he has spoken it, I hope in it. I have a great goal an end, and I'm going to abound in hope for next season, since this season is basically over, except for the Army game. That's one kind of hope. That's a good kind of hope, so long as the person making the promises is trustworthy, is capable of doing the things that he says he's going to do. So when it's Coach Ken, you should have a certain amount of hope, when it's the God of the universe declaring that he's going to gather all the nations to himself, you can have a lot of hope because it's God. God does whatever he wants. But the other kind of hope is for Coach Ken to say, we are going to win the national championship next year and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do step A, step B, step C, step D, Filling in the gaps there, not just saying things like A, B, C, and D, because that would be fool's hope. But here's actually what we're going to do. And you see the map, you hear the promise, and you're filled with hope. Not only because you know the end and because the end's been promised to you, but because you see the map that will lead there. So last week we saw the promises, sweeping promises from the Old Testament 
what God is doing, what God's actually doing in this room and in this city. This week, we get to see through kind of a, a personal excursion of Paul's, really over the next two weeks, as Paul gets, kind of opens up, we get to see a little bit more of insight into who he is, his relationships, his strategies. But, but in seeing those strategies, we actually see another ground of hope. If last week, the ground of our hope was the person of God himself and his commitment to do what he says he's going to do. And the ground of our hope this week is his calling of Paul and his establishment of the church and the mission of the church and how that leads to the end that he promised us last week. Those are the two kinds of hope. Last week we focused on the first one. This week we're focusing, focusing on the second one. And I like the second one better. Although the first one's great. So we get to look at Paul and consider Paul and to do so we're going to unpack a little bit of history. We're going to draw, um, we're going to lay the book of Acts here beside um, the book of Acts, what we know kind of from history from an author named Clement and some other histories of Rome um, and lay it next to the, the issues that Paul describes here in Romans 15. Um, in Romans 15, um, we're going to start here at the back end. Look at starting in verse 22. He talks about how he's been hindered from coming to Rome. It's something he mentioned in chapter one, that he's been wanting to get to Rome. He's never made it to Rome. He's eager to get to Rome. Um, and now he says uh, he no longer has room to do the kind of work that he's been doing in these other regions. He hopes now to come to Rome. And the goal of his coming to Rome is to eventually to go to Spain. Um, Spain at the time uh, was technically called the ends of the earth. And so when you said, and you see things in the New Testament referring to the ends of the earth. It was talking about Spain and sometimes Britain. In other words, it was like a real place. I want to go to the ends of the earth. Oh, you're going to Spain. You should try that for your next vacation. I'm going to the ends of the earth. Oh, where? Madrid. So this is how things work. So Paul says, here's my goal. I'm done preaching over here. I want to now make my way to Rome. And in Rome, he tells him in just a minute, I intend to be fully blessed by you. Code, I intend to raise an enormous amount of money from you. So start saving. And then I'm going to take this money full of the blessing of Jesus from you, and I'm going to go to Spain. And there in Spain, I'm going to preach the gospel. And where he hasn't been preached before. Jesus has not been preached there. And so my goal is to get to Spain. And then he gives us some details about what he's actually up to and what he's doing. And so if you look, he says at present, he's on his way to Jerusalem. If you know the book of Acts, uh, this is, um, he's writing this. We think he's writing Romans around uh, mid-50s, probably around 54, if we had to pick a year, um, 54 AD. So again, it's early part of Nero's reign. It's when Nero is not a psychotic person killing everyone. Um, he's a decent, well, he's not really a decent person. He's just letting everyone flourish. He's not trying to destroy anyone. Um, he's not killing people in mass. He's kind of um, seeing the market restored, the, the economy restored to Rome. He's allowing the Jews back into the city. Things are going um, kind of swimmingly for Christians at this point um, in Rome. Uh, this is early part of Nero's reign. 
Um, so this early part of Nero's reign, things are starting to go badly in Jerusalem. Um, there is uh, a need for food and for money to make their way um, back into Jerusalem because of a famine. Um, a lot of historians believe that the riots that would begin to take shape uh, in, in the late 60s in Jerusalem are largely born out of the famine that is breaking out in this time um, in Jerusalem. So you have um, a people whose whole economy, their whole way of eating, their whole way of living is being slowly decimated um, because of environmental concerns. Um, and the result of that will be a rebellion against Rome herself. But Paul is now on his way, making his way back into Jerusalem. You'll notice at the end here, he prays um, for three things. Uh, he prays that they, he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Prays that the service for Jerusalem, he's been traveling around raising money to take to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Christians um, so that they can buy food. And that it would be acceptable to the saints. Um, and third, that God, um, by God's will, he would eventually make his way to Rome, be refreshed in their company, and then go on to Spain. Um, we know that, he, uh, that the second prayer is answered. Um, he brings uh, the resources to the Jerusalem church from the Gentile churches, and they're received by the Jerusalem church. Um, the first prayer that he delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, it happens in a manner. Um, uh, that he is arrested, he's bound, um, and he is held in prison for several years in Jerusalem. Uh, but in doing so, he's actually rescued from uh, the unbelievers, the, the unbelieving Jewish authorities um, in Jerusalem who uh, are trying to kill him. And so then the Romans come and arrest him slash rescue him. Um, and then he appeals to Rome and that becomes his uh, kind of free ticket um, from Jerusalem uh, by way of the sea and shipwreck, all kinds of terrible things um, to make his way um, to Rome. So in a manner of speaking, um, the first prayer that he'd be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea um, comes true as well. Um, he's delivered from them by being thrown in prison with the Romans. The third thing, um, that he would make his way to the Roman church and be refreshed by them, uh, we do have reason to believe that this is, in fact, what happened. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest, uh, likely um, sometime in the late 50s, very late 50s, uh, in house, under house arrest, um, the author of Acts tells us he's being nourished, he's being ministered to by the believers in Rome um, there at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, now we go beyond that and, uh, and we can actually find um, an author named Clement tells us that, that Paul um, eventually would leave Rome and go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel in Spain. Uh, there's some actual uh, stories that he went beyond Spain actually, made his way into Britain. And we know that eventually back in 64 AD, um, so about when Nero loses his mind, um, Paul is, finds his way back um, under arrest back in Rome and is eventually beheaded um, under Nero's um, extensive, beginning of his extensive persecution of Christians everywhere. And so this was Paul's work. This is what Paul is up to. That's what he's describing for us here. And it's kind of a fascinating look at um, Paul's plans. Um, and, and undergirding all of it, Paul says, is he wants to go where Christ has never been preached and lay a new foundation. 
So Paul understood his work this way, that he was um, going everywhere throughout the world, eventually wants to go to the very ends of the earth, and he's traveling everywhere and he's laying foundations. Now the the language here to describe um, the work that Paul is doing, this architectural language, um, particularly when it's linked with the priestly language um, that he uses in the first couple of verses in, in this text, tells us that what he conceives himself as doing is going everywhere throughout the world and, and laying the foundation for the building of temples everywhere. Now, not temples built with hands, not temples built with stones, but temples built together out of people. In other words, he understood his job um, in kind of modern language. We'd use the language of missionary work. We'd call it this language. Um, we, we'd call this kind of work church planting work. What he saw himself as doing is actually going um, from city to city, from, from land to land and building temples. But he didn't want to go where there were already foundations laid. He wanted to go where there were no foundations laid. This is actually why he didn't go to Rome. There was already a temple there. A temple filled with Jewish and Gentile believers who were worshiping God. And so he wanted to go everywhere. And his chief goal, his highest goal, where he really, really wanted to end up, is in Western Europe. In, in, in England and in Spain. He wanted to go somewhere where Christ had not been named and worshipped and see him worshipped there. Um, We today are still involved in that kind of work. And there are places in the earth where there are no temples, there are no churches, there are no Christians gathered together in the name of Jesus to to worship him. And so we actually, as a church, um, help fund... Um, an Irishman working in Paris, a uh, guy named Philip Moore. I really hope you get to meet Philip someday. Um, if everything opens up and COVID craziness ends and, and he's able to come and be with us sometime, uh, I'd love for him to come and preach for you. Um, a handful of years ago, uh, Philip and I met in Paris um, at a French restaurant where Philip was eating raw ground beef with a raw egg on it and soy sauce, which evidently is really good. Um, seems disgusting to me, but this is the thing that people eat there, and it's very good. Um, we met at a French restaurant there, um, and we began talking together, not just about, hey, how, how could we support church planting and the starting of churches in Paris, but, but Paris, seeing Paris as a gateway or, or a, a bridge into North Africa. And the reason why North Africa was important it was, is because there are all kinds of places and towns and villages and cities, and, and, and at this point, almost whole nations in North Africa where Christ is not named, where he's not known, he's not loved, he's not worshipped, um, where offerings are not brought to him um, week after week after week by people who love him. And so we began to dream together and pray together um, about what would it look like to to begin churches in Paris that intentionally sought um, to to, to train, to disciple um, uh, North Africans to go back into North Africa and see churches started where there are no churches. So we dreamed that up. He dreamed that up. We prayed together. um, We we talked together. We laughed together. um, And we've known each other for years now. And um, that was was probably in, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, And then in 2019, in the spring, he, he came to visit. And, uh, um, and we were talking at a coffee shop, catching up, and he, he said, I have to show you something. He pulled out his computer, he opened it, um, hit play on a video that he had stored on his computer, um, and here was a very, very small village, small town, 
um, in a part of North Africa where Christ had never been named, never been worshipped and loved. And here was a gathering of 20 new believers singing psalms, singing hymns, worshiping Jesus together. And I look over at him, he's crying and he's saying, it's worked. We've laid a foundation where no foundation had ever been laid. In this town, there has never been a Christian. And now there's a church. He points out a man who's the pastor. That pastor had come from another city in North Africa where he'd been trained for three years. And prior to that, he'd been in Paris in university where he'd um, converted from Islam to Christianity and been discipled in a church um, that, that we'd been a part of starting. This is one of the ways that God is at work knitting together the nations, calling the nations to himself to be filled with offerings to him and glory and honor and praise and worship. He is sending people, people like Philip, to other places where he trains and cares for and shepherds young pastors who then go to places often at great risk to their lives to declare the gospel, to pray for the sick, to, to, to love people well, but most of all, to declare in truth what God has done for us in the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. And the spirit comes and makes people alive and they worship him and they sing to him and they praise him and boom, foundation for a temple is established where there hasn't been one before. So that's one aspect of what God is up to and how God is, we should abound in hope. And it was foundational to understanding what Paul was up to. But, but I want to see um, very specifically what Paul saw himself as doing. And so to do so, I, um, beyond just kind of that, even that broad scale look at what he's doing, um, I want to draw your attention to two different um, ways of, of him describing his work. Um, so we've already talked about his foundation building. He's thinking of this in architectural language. The language here is actually very, very similar to Ephesians chapter two and three, where Paul describes his work as building households or building temples where God himself by his spirit will dwell upon the earth. And so the language there, the image there is he is going about building temples. In other words, he wants to see the whole earth filled with the glory of God, the presence of God, um, the majesty of God. Um, every single nation, every single city filled with the presence of God himself. Not the ideas about God, not merely good theology about God, not merely good godly ethics, but that God himself would dwell in all the cities of the earth. His ambition and his goal was not to start a merely kind of a set of religious practices or religious ethics or religious services, but that everywhere he went, he wanted to see all the nations of the earth filled up with God himself. And so he goes and he builds temples, temples made up of people. Um, that, that, he describes us as a temple. Not this building with the windows and the weird domes so that if you're talking over there, I can hear you over here. Um, not, not all of that stuff. 
But, but actually the people in this room, as you look around, these are living stones being knit together into the dwelling place of God. So, so that what Paul might say as he looks out at this room right now um, is as, as given as evidence of what we've done this morning as we've sung, as we've confessed our sins, um, as we've received pardon, um, as, as we listen to the word, as we gather around this table, is that God has knit us together right now this morning into a temple so that he dwells here by his spirit. In other words, what we're up to this morning is you not listening uh, merely to a lecture from your megachurch pastor on his stool, um, uh, not uh, merely that you got to sing some songs or see some friends, but rather what we're doing in this room is we are gathered together as bricks built together and God is here. His goal is that the world would be filled with places, with gatherings of people of which it is said, God is there. And so God is here. Now, what does Paul want us to do with that? That's where this other language comes in. The language that he uses here, verse 16, this grace given to him, this ministry, this calling given to him, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here's the image, and this gets crazy. Paul sees himself as building temples. What do you do in temples? You offer sacrifices. Come together in the presence of God. Then the priest comes and takes the offering, purifies the offering, and then offers the offering as a sacrifice to the God who dwells in the temple. So what Paul sees himself as doing is functioning as a priest in the presence of God bringing an offering that's been made pure by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, and then presenting that sacrifice as an offering to God. Do you get it? What it means to be a Christian is not what we as 21st century Americans tend to think of what it means to be a Christian. We post-enlightenment thinkers tend to think of religion as a preference, as an accoutrement. A set of intellectual points of assent, a body of morality we'll submit to or buy into. And then maybe, although less and less so in American, in American Christianity, a set of practices that we embody. What Paul says it means to be a Christian is it means to be a sacrifice. It means that you're a lamb being brought into the presence of God himself and sacrificed on an altar as an offering to him. It is 
in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, to no longer belong to yourself. You see, we like to think of um, God, particularly in Christianity, as a kind of a kind of help to the life we already want and want to pursue. I want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. I want a certain kind of family life. Um, I want a certain sort of, I want at least some sort of traditional moral code to follow. And I would like some traditional theological, historical things to kind of um, ground my life in so that I might have the life I want. And so God or Christianity, um, if it fits into that, um, we place it in it. We, we, We kind of, Adopt it. It becomes the jacket we wear, the button we put on, the kind of um, the, um, the 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 uniform we wear, the religious uniform we wear as we go about our life. This is not how the Bible describes becoming a Christian. It is not adopting a set of religious preferences. It is death. It is coming to an altar and dying in the presence of God. Your whole life is no longer your own. Worship is not about your preferences. Your marriage is not about your pleasure or comfort. Raising children is not about some sort of historical, multi-generational fulfillment. Your set of morals is not just kind of choosing what you think works for you or feels right to you. No, to be a Christian in light of the way the scriptures speak is that you die. You no longer belong to yourself. You are a living sacrifice. Everything you are now is submitted to and belongs to the God of the universe. There's enormous comfort in this. Listen to Listen to the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Paul does not see his work as a missionary, as his work among us, his work um, as our work in the midst of our city, as a kind of trying to help people along and making the right or or the, 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 the religious preference choices that we happen to like. No, it is a call to come and say, I want to bring sacrifices to God. As I have died in Christ and been raised in Christ, so I pray that all my neighbors would die with Christ as offerings and be raised with Christ as offerings. 
when he describes the gathering of the church, it's not kind of a self-help seminar. It's not a time um, um, for, for, for us at all. It is we gather together as the living sacrifices of God to bring our offerings, our very lives into his presence. This is the Christianity that Paul aims at. It is the only authentic Christianity. It is a Christianity where you are no longer your own. Children, where you are no longer your own. Professional successes in this room, where you are no longer your own. Professional failures in this room, where you are no longer your own but you belong to God. Oh, that may be a comfort to you. And our prayer, our longings for our neighbors in this city is that they would find life by becoming those who no longer belong to themselves, but belong to God. God's strategy is that in each and all the cities of the earth, he would build temples. Temples filled with pleasing aromas to God. Imagine this room filled with living sacrifices. Lives that that self-consciously belong to God children who self-consciously belong to God, marriages that self-consciously belong to God, vocations and jobs in every field imaginable represented in this room that self-consciously belong to God, relationships with roommates that self-consciously belong to God. This is what Paul seeks to establish. This is why we planted a church in Denver. That God would knit together a temple filled with living sacrifices, pleading with our neighbors to come and believe the insanity. No, if you'll come and die, you will find how to live. Pleading with neighbors the insanity. No, come and be a sacrifice to someone else. And there and only there will you find life. This is the work Paul engaged in, this is the work that God is still up to all over the nations of the earth. In some places where there are no foundations laid, in most places where there are foundations laid, building together a temple, a dwelling place where Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, come together around one table, loving one another, receiving one another, Welcoming one another, why? Because we belong to God. Because my life, my body is not my own, but belongs wholly to him. So I'm gonna look at three things with that vision of what Christianity is and what the mission of God is, what God is actually up to right now in our city I want to look at three just kind of takeaways from that. Three things to walk away 
with that. I, I, I do not believe that this can be left in um, intangible ideas. I think what the world needs, what our city desperately needs, what God actually intends, it is not just a bunch of people who understand these, these ideas. They've got great kind of nerdy theology. I can give kind of a framework for temple worship, for liturgy, for, um, for these big sweeping ideas that we belong to God. It actually has to become concrete. The work that God is doing in filling the earth with his glory is not a, 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 a limitless abstraction. It actually has very concrete feet on it. As you begin to look at exactly what Paul was up to, it's actually one of the things I found most encouraging in this text. Um, and I want us to go beyond it a bit, but, but for Paul, this idea that the nations would come and worship Yahweh that they would worship Christ was not an abstraction. Wasn't he a thing that he did, kind of, he, he believed and sang about in a dark room on his own and kind of went about the rest of his life. The idea that, that, that a city like Rome would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, they would be brought into obedience to God. That, that wasn't for him an idea. It wasn't like just a, the chorus of a cool song. Um, it, it wasn't kind of some far off future ideal. It was a thing that he actually went to work pursuing at great cost to himself, great cost to his body. Why? Because his body's not his own. In other words, the, the kind of work that he's describing here, the kinds of hope that, that, that God has called us to as a people um, cannot be a mere abstraction. It can't be merely some kind of idea in a song that we sing or, or an idea in a book we read. There's a book on the back shelf, Theopolitan Vision, lays out this picture as beautifully and Theopolitan Mission. Um, those two books kind of lay out this vision um, far better than I am this morning. But if all this stuff is for you, it's merely an abstraction, an idea, or something that maybe Philip is doing in France for North Africa, and not something that we are actually tangibly, concretely pursuing together as a people, um, then you've actually missed one of the most beautiful angles on this text. For Paul, these weren't ideas. They were things he actually went and got stoned for and beaten for and arrested for. It actually involved going into cities, um, finding a convenient place to preach and starting to preach. It involved getting in debates and dialogue and it, it, it involved like picking fights with the right people and making friends with the right people. It involved fundraising like he is in this letter. Like, hey, actually I'm gonna need money to get to Spain because it's far and Madrid has some great restaurants but they're super expensive. And so I'm gonna need some money. Like, to, Just joking, there weren't really any good restaurants in Madrid at the time. Um, I, I'm going to have to figure out a way to go over there. So I'm going to come and raise money. Um, th this is all a part of a tangible, concrete plan to see these promises fulfilled. In other words, our hope is grounded in the promise of God, that God is the one who has said it. But there's still plans. There's still concrete. There's still things we have to do. So as we talk about what does it mean for us to be a, a, a temple, um, a, the dwelling place of God, the household of God, um, talking about this actual 
group of people in this room and those who aren't here today and those who will come into this place in the future as we talk about what does it mean for God to dwell here? What does it mean for us to to bring into him and present to him offerings, living sacrifices to him? People who say, I am not my own. It has to be concrete. It has to be tangible. And I want to mark three-ish things. I'm really bad at like three-point deals because one of the points turns into five sub-points and then it becomes eight points and then people get confused. Are we on point two or point seven? Um, so I'm just going to say a smattering of points. And you can decide if there are three or not. Those of you who are better at math than I am. And so first, I think I've been, I've been stunned in Romans by the, prim- by, by the primacy placed upon the, the, the actual gathering of God's people for worship. That there is, I, I, think, I think I've known for a while, and maybe you, you know this as well, like it, it really matters for you, mostly in ways that aren't simply cognizant and, and aren't necessarily even emotional. It just, there's something that matters greatly for us as human beings about week in and week out, gathering to walk through a liturgy, to sing songs together, to hear the word proclaimed together, to gather at this table together, to be sent out from here together. There's something that God is up to in all of that. The spirit is wielding all of that to build faith, to birth faith, to sustain faith. I think I've known that for a while. What I haven't maybe always understood is how central what we do here, actually in this gathering together is in, in, in terms of how it is that we glorify God. And I, I think what I mean by that is as Americans, we've been prone to think of all of the rest of our life is what matters. Work, maybe family, maybe all the other stuff that you do. And what church exists for is to kind of give you your vitamin smoothie. And you have different flavors of vitamin smoothie. This week we have more of the mega church vitamin smoothie. Um, other weeks you have different other kinds of vitamin smoothies. But to get your vitamin smoothie, whatever kind of vitamin smoothie you want, so that you can go and do all the really important stuff where you really glorify God or you have the opportunity to glorify God in your life out there. Um, I, I think, I don't think that's exactly right. And I, I don't think, not exactly right. I don't think that's right at all. <laughs> I don't think it's opposite is true either. So, so the opposite would be like, hey, you do all of that stuff to prepare to come here. I don't think that's actually true either. I think there's a unique kind of glorifying of God that's intended to happen in your work and in your marriage and in your relationships and with your children. And that integrally connected to that is a unique kind of glory that we're to bring to God as we gather week in and week out to bring our offerings before him in the temple. So one of the ways that that this kind of offering, this kind of glorification of God take place is is the primacy, the centrality of of us gathering in this space together every single week with our children, 
in relationships, when there's conflict, resolve, like this, this should become an anchor point for you to resolve conflict. Before you come into the temple, make sure you and your brother have nothing against one another. And so coming together in the presence of God to bring our offerings, offerings of song, offerings of love, offerings of our prayers, even offering our sins. But this is central to what it means to be God's people faithfully in the world who don't belong to ourselves. This is a very different way of thinking about the life of the church. And I don't have a ton of time to spend on it, although we're gonna spend more time on it after Christmas. But I would say, first off, how do, how do we live out this vision, this hope, pursue this hope together in our city? It is that the gathering of the saints, the gathering of God's people needs to become even more important than it is to all of us. Not, not primarily as a means of getting something, but rather as a means of us coming together and offering something together in God's presence. So that's first. Second, starting there and then everywhere, welcoming one another, loving one another, pursuing one another's good, one another's objective good. Um, Love has been maligned in our day and, and... reduced to mean merely, um, I do things that make you feel good. That is not love. Love is I pursue your good. Listen again to verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another or, or, or bring maturity to one another. There is in our knitting together, our calling together as the body of Christ, um, a pursuit of one another's instruction, one another's growth, one another's joy, one another's fullness in Christ. This is not something that's been merely relegated to the pastor, or merely relegated to elders, but rather it should be the ongoing work of the people of God in the church, filled with all knowledge, and goodness. Um, if you're filled with all knowledge without goodness, you are very annoying. If you're filled with goodness with no knowledge, you are like a wet noodle. For it to be love and instruction, it needs to be goodness and knowledge. In other words, I'm using and wielding whatever knowledge God has given me about the nature of the world and himself and godliness for your good, because I love you, because I want you to flourish. I want you to know him. I want your marriage to flourish and your children to flourish and you to flourish in your job and walking in wisdom, not just so you can know how smart I am or how much better at politics I am or social issues I am, or coveting, I am. You need COVID now as a verb. Some of you COVID one way, some of you COVID another. Some of you think you're better at COVIDing than the other people are. 
that, that's not the point. Like, like, and this is the temptation in the church. Um, those of us, or maybe I should say this, those of you with knowledge, you don't wield it in good ways. You wield it to just like beat people. Stop beating people with your idea. Like that's not loving. Others of you are really good people. You're nice, so nice, like super nice. But you're not grounding your pursuit of other people's good in anything objective or knowledgeable um, or what you can know. And so it's just like squishy. It's not actually producing the fruit of goodness in people's lives. Um, so, So what Paul calls us to is to welcome one another, to pursue the good of one another with knowledge and with goodness. And that knowledge and that goodness should go to work for people in this community. It should go to work for people in your marriage. It should go to work for people like the little ones in your family. All of that should be active and, and going to work to produce fruit in one another's lives. And the last thing I'll focus on is that the people of God from the very beginning as living sacrifices to God are being restored to our initial vocation that we've been given as human beings all the way back in the garden. That that we would be a people who fill the earth and subdue it. And and oftentimes I think there's been this diminishment of the the most tactical ways that we follow God in the universe. Namely by getting married and raising kids and having a job where you're actually producing good and loving other people through your work. And, And we try to make following Jesus and being a living sacrifice to Jesus, kind of a, um, like a, a real kind of amped up call to have cool quiet times. And I'm all about cool quiet times. They're better than uh, non-cool quiet times. But, but the reality is, is that like, what does it look like to be a living sacrifice to God? It means your life is not your own. And so you, um, um, for those of you who are married or will get married, you pursue your spouse and to have a marriage that reflects and honors God. For those of you who have children, you seek to raise them up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Like these are an aspect of what it means um, that God has called us. One of the reasons God has put us on the earth is to fill the earth. And, and by that, it's not just like, I, I know it gets abstracted at all kinds of things. Um, in, in the Bible, it just means like, get married and have kids. Like it's that simple. And do it as unto God and do it in a way that honors God. And then secondly, work, that we would take all of the raw materials of this earth, um, whether it's rocks or wood and construction or or different other kinds of strange rocks that you can turn magically into things called phones, um, or it's it's light and and photography and taking light and transforming it into something beautiful, um, uh, whether it's coffee beans, and if you apply an enormous amount of pressure and heat, um, suddenly that will become something magical called espresso, or even better, grapes. If you step on them with dirty feet and you let it age in the right conditions, it produces Wine. Magic. Like, like to put our life to work in the midst of the world, um, filling it with God lovers and using our hands, using our gifts, using our minds, um, using all the gifts at our disposal to take this world and see it filled with fruitfulness. Fruitfulness that can bless other people. 
Oh, that we would be a church that prioritizes gathering in God's presence for worship. That receives one another, welcomes one another with goodness and knowledge. And then in the most simple ways imaginable, goes about the work that God has called us to in this city. Building houses. If you're building houses, build houses unto God. If you're taking pictures, take pictures unto God. If you're a stay-at-home mom, raise those children as unto God. If you're an accountant, oh, count stuff. I don't even know what accountants do. They fill in spreadsheets. Fill in spreadsheets to the glory of God, um, knowing that someday math will be perfected and your job will be unnecessary. Um, if you're a lawyer, um, a lawyer unto God. If, if, if you're a headmaster at a school, um, headmaster unto God. Like, like see children grow up into disciples of Jesus. Like do everything you do as unto the Lord. Why? Because you are not your own, but because you belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful savior, Jesus Christ. You are an offering and your whole life is to be an offering. Let's pray. So Father, we give thanks to you the one who has purchased us, redeemed us, cleansed us, liberated us, made us holy. Holy not just that we're clean from sin, but also holy in terms of purpose. That we belong to you. We belong to your ends and your aims and your goals. That this world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That this world will be filled with joy this world will be filled with peace. This, this world will be filled with righteousness and justice. And so God, make us faithful to our new vocations, our new identity, our soul new identity as living sacrifices, offerings brought to you. In your name we pray, amen.